Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our bi-weekly, bi-weekly, our twice-weekly meditation session and Q&A. Meditation. We practice meditation. It's a bit misleading of a word because it's not, we don't use the word in the way that it's generally used in English. In English it means something like to weigh things. Med, the root med, has to do with weighing, measuring. Where medicine comes from. To meditate is to mull, to ponder. We don't really do any of that. In fact, in some sense, that's the opposite of what we're trying to do. But it's not it's not to say that. Meditation is to clear your mind of any thought. It's just to purify our thought. To purify the function, the routine of thinking, the, the faculty, the faculty of thought. There's something about thought that gets us in trouble something about our faculty to analyze things that evokes problematic states of mind, makes us angry, makes us greedy, makes us arrogant, conceited. But you can't blame thought. Thought isn't the problem. The, thought, the, the problem is our ignorance, is our lack of clarity. And so we create clarity of thought. I mean, meditation isn't, or the way we practice, isn't to clear the mind of any thought, isn't to blank the mind, isn't to stop thinking to have clarity of thought. And so we create these clear thoughts. We train ourselves, we teach ourselves how to think. What to think. What should we think of things? Sounds a bit like brainwashing. I kind of like the term brainwashing because it's a cleansing of the mind, right? It's not how the word is used again, but quite literally Washing the brain sounds like a good thing. If by brain you mean mind, and by wash you mean cleanse. If the brain is dirty, the brain is, and not dirty in a in a perverted sense, but dirty in a in a like our motor might get dirty, or a machine might get. corrupted and have to be cleaned, fixed. In the old days you had to clean your CD drive or it wouldn't read the CD. It wasn't, wasn't able to read properly and it would skip and the sound would be corrupted. We used to have to clean our VHS recorders and so on. Cleaning, cleaning the machine. So with meditation we do this clean, cleansing.
That's how we look at this process of reminding ourselves. We're trying to evoke thoughts that are on track, that are simple and in line with reality, sort of limited to reality. We're trying to limit our thoughts to what we can know, to what is true. It's very little that we can know. But there are things we can know. It's a powerful sort of radical statement, more radical than it might seem. In, in science, they... In modern science, there's a concept that we can't know anything. Which is funny because the word is science, right? And I'm not mocking, but it's completely understandable. If your premise is the impersonal, then by very definition you can't know anything. If your definition of truth, of reality, is an impersonal thing, then of course you have to be taken out of the picture. So your knowledge is irrelevant. But it misses the fact that you can know things, and it denies that fact. It says your knowledge isn't real knowledge. Of course, because they rightly point out the problem of bias, and the problem of uh, the inability to confirm or deny bias, to, to be certain of an absence of bias. Nobody knows whether you're actually experiencing what you say you're experiencing, right? Except there are exceptions, and that's why I say there's very little we can know. Anyway, not to get too theoretical, but this, the, the conclusion is that a focus in meditation has to be on those few things that we can know, and those are the very fundamentals of experience. You can know seeing. You can know hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, cognizing. You can't know that you're experiencing what you think you're experiencing. For example, if you see God, you can't be sure that it's God. That's not something you can know. But you can sure as heck know that you're, you're seeing something. Something. There is... More accurately, there is an experience of seeing. That you can be sure of. If there is, there is. If there isn't, there is not. What exactly it is? That's another question. People, places, things, these are outside of the realm of what can be known. They're conceptual. They're only, they only can be known conceptually. You perceive that there is a being there. And so we try to retrain our minds to be based in this reality. Because we're not. We see things and immediately our focus is on concepts. Ah yes, there's this person I see, this thing I see hear, smell, rather than focus on the experience, we've already focused on something that is conceptual, that we don't really, that isn't really in the realm of, of knowledge. So we aim to change that, to have our state of mind be present, real. What are you experiencing right now? Experiencing seeing, experiencing hearing. What are you seeing? Hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. 
All of this is happening. This is real. It's not to say that what you're, what you think it is that you are experiencing is real, but the experience is real. Kogito ergo sum. I am. There is. There is something, and that something is experience. So, welcome again. Normally at this time, the chat would be more active, so... Am I missing something, or have... have uh, Shraddha, do you see anything in the chat? Yes, I do. Okay, my... I don't see anything. Which I guess is okay. I don't need to see the chat, but let me see if I can confirm that we're live. Oh, there it is. Yeah. No, my uh, my thing was frozen. Okay, so here's how it works. In the beginning here, should have said this at the beginning. You can chat, say hello, hello everyone, good day. Appreciate that you're all here. We have 50 people already. It's a great, a great thing. It's great that we have a community that comes together. We have people who are keen, eager to take part, to share this with us, with each other. This time to be mindful, to be present. We come together to be present. train our minds in in this the experience of reality but once we get started we're going to we, we've sort of begun an experiment of limiting the chat to questions only and please that includes telling other people please don't don't worry about telling other people they should they shouldn't talk you don't have to say anything. Don't even have to. Really, you sh nobody should be reading the chat. What, right now it's okay. Right now we're chatting. But once we start with the questions, you know, I've asked Shraddha to remove anything that's not a question from that from that point on. Just makes it easier for her. Makes it easier for all of us. It it prevents this state of distraction reminds us to focus inward you keep your eyes closed and focus on your own experience if you have a question open your eyes, type it out but then close them again go back to forget about what's going on in chat go back to reality alright, I'm ready to start so from now on, questions only, please. Everybody put on your meditator hats and close your eyes. Let's begin. How much effort and time should one put into finding a mantra for the experience before it just becomes thinking? It's a bit, bit of a skill in the beginning, something new, a new way of approaching things, because by the time we found a mantra, our mind has already gone and thought up its own thoughts about things. It's okay in the beginning to take your time, but it should get quite quick and routine after some time. It will become second nature for you to recognize what something is. You see, the time it takes to recognize is the building of that skill. When you experience something, the time it takes for you to, to coalesce in your mind what that actually is, to have this, this determination come up in the mind, yeah, that's what that is. That's, um, that time is time spent cultivating mindfulness cultivating recognition or remembrance of the thing 
we can't quickly do that in the beginning because we're not quite clear on what it is. We think it's a person talking. If you hear me talking, your idea is that that's a person talking. By the time you are focused on... You know, it takes time before you're focused on what you're, you're actually experiencing, the hearing. When you do that, then you say to yourself, hearing... In the beginning it takes a bit of time Because it's a shift It's a shift of Your perception of the experience I think in the beginning you might stress over it Worry about it Doubt about whether you found the right word For example Push yourself Force yourself All of that Something you should, or things, all of those are things you should be mindful of as well. Take them as an object if they come up. I have an emotional pain that is sinking me. On what basis should I disidentify from it and let it go? is not concerning me. It is my responsibility to have created the conditions for it to occur. Uh, it, so it, it might be a little bit of a case of putting the cart before the horse. I don't know if you've heard of this, this expression. A horse has to come first. You can't put the cart before the horse. Need the horse to pull the cart, not the the cart can't pull the horse. Which means don't don't do things out of order. And our focus on things like disidentifying, letting go. Uh, the idea that something doesn't concern you, all of that it should be the result of what you do. So you don't actually disidentify. The it's an interest I've never heard that word before. I wonder is it a real word? I guess if it is, it's a good one. Disidentification. Disidentification is the result of seeing clearly. Because on what basis? On the basis that it's not you, it's not yours, it isn't. So you don't have to do any of that, you just have to focus on seeing clearly which means just looking. You just look, learn how to look, learn how to see. So let's like let's take emotional pain for example. If it were you, then it wouldn't be sinking you because you'd be able to control it. You'd be in charge of it being there. It's not really how it works, this idea of I, this idea of me. So you disidentifying, I disidentifying from something isn't really a thing because there's already identification once you say, oh, it's me who's experiencing it. So that's not how it works. It works by observing the emotional pain and becoming weary of it. Because, yes, the mind is responsible for it, but the mind is an unruly, unwieldy beast. And the only way to make the mind let go of its stranglehold on these experiences is to observe it until there arises a boredom of sorts. A disenchantment, we call it. Nibida. Atanibindatiduke, one becomes disenchanted with suffering. One's excitement uh, vanishes because it's not it's not very exciting. In the beginning, that's the problem: is it is quite exciting to the mind. Something bad happens, something good happens, and the mind is excited, stressed by it. Eventually you observe it so much 
And that's what mindfulness gives you, is this repeated, repeated observation. Once you've done it enough, then there's no excitement anymore. The mind has had enough and it lets go. Has had enough of getting stressed, getting upset. It's come to see that getting upset is no no benefit. It's no good. It's my responsibility to have created the conditions for it to occur. Well, I think that doesn't really mean as much as you think it means. Um, you know, it's in the past, and and it's an inter it's a perfectly valid observation that you have a responsibility, or or this is how it occurred, and it's not caused by anyone else. But it doesn't really mean much in the long term. It doesn't say much. All that will do is create more thoughts, more reactions, and they're not really of any benefit either. It's no benefit to tell yourself that, that you did this to yourself, for example. I mean, there's a limited benefit of, oh, I shouldn't do that again next time, but it doesn't really work that way either. The way it works is you see clearly that you didn't get any benefit from this happening, or you see clearly the nature of what has happened. And then any inclination or interest in cultivating the same thing in the future vanishes, weakens at least, but eventually vanishes. There's no no inclination for make, for encouraging those things again in the future. Whatever it is that you did to cause yourself pain, you won't do those things anymore, but more importantly, you won't be pained by them. I guess you see getting pained by things as stressful, as unpleasant, as worthless. Basically worthless. Ultimately that's the point. There's no, there was no benefit in this. I don't know if that, I mean it's a bit, I didn't quite answer you directly or clearly or simply. The simple answer is that when you see clearly, you, you understand it to be the truth, that it's not you, it's not yours. That's all you need to do. You don't have to rationalize the detachment from things. You don't have to even try to detach from things. You just have to see things clearly, and the letting go will take care of itself, because there's nothing worth clinging to. Sabedhamma na langabhiniwe saya. No dhamma is worth clinging to. Nothing. Not even enlightenment, not even freedom. If it's true freedom, it will have nothing to do with clinging. There can be no clinging to freedom. How do we know that our meditation is progressing? It's a common question. The simple answer is that you'll have less greed, less anger, and less delusion. But I'd like to add to that that a focus on progress is is often a, a hindrance itself. The only way to really progress, if that's even the right word, is by focusing on the practice itself, which seems a little bit like a cop-out, but let's explain sort of why that could be, or how you could swallow that idea, because why would you focus on the practice if it wasn't actually leading to progress, right? If there was no benefit to it, how can you tell yourself to focus on it without being reassured 
The problem with reassurance is that it's unpredictable. We're very complicated beings and you might do all the right things and still have bad things happen to you because we're complicated and the causes of bad habits are still to be felt. And so you might you have all these bad habits and then you do all these good things and the bad habits still bring their result. You still get stressed and upset. You still have greed, anger, delusion, even though you are practicing rightly. It's not something that's quickly or simply affected. How you convince yourself, reassure yourself in the practice is by the quality of the practice itself. It's, 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 one, it's a different thing to see the quality of the practice than it is to see the fruit, to see the benefit. So rather than focus on benefit as such, you focus on the beneficence of the practice. Is what you're doing beneficial? Can be answered? Can be answered without reference to the actual benefits? So what you have to determine is the nature of a pure and a clear and a right state of mind. And you can see that through the practice of mindfulness. You can experience clarity and purity, rightness of mind. You can see what that is. It's not arbitrary. It's something you can know for yourself. It's not immediate, but with just a little bit of focus and effort in the practice, you quite quickly start start to see the difference between mindfulness and unmindfulness and can be reassured by the nature, the quality of the mind that is mindful, that it is beneficial. So to train yourself in that, don't worry too much about the actual benefits. If you do the work, you get paid. Just make sure you're doing the work. Someone gives you, if your boss, your employer gives you a task to do, you know what the task is, just do it. You don't have to worry about what the result's going to be. Or maybe more directly, more simply, if you plant, plant seeds, as long as you know what you're planting, you don't have to worry about what's going to grow. Yadisang wapate bijang tadisang harate palang. Whatever seed you sow, that is the fruit that you reap. Kalyanakari kalyanang papakari chapapakang. If you sow good deeds, good things come. If you sow goodness, good things come. Goodness comes. If you sow evil, evil comes. As I meditate more often, I find my physical experiences during meditation becoming more intense, such as my weight on the feet or pain in my back. Is this normal and will it remain so going forward? So why... I, many of you are aware of the. I've commented on the, the phrase "Is this normal?" or the question of something being normal. It's it's not really of interest or of import. And and I'll explain why be, again because it's actually a bit antithetical to what we're trying to do. It's a natural reaction. You see, we're we're we want to be reassured that this isn't out of the ordinary because that would somehow be problematic but you see a very important part of the practice is to see 
the uncertainty of things, that there will be abnormalities, that abnormality is the normal. In fact, there is no normal. You can't predict, you can't depend, you can't rely on anything. You can't rely on things to be a certain way. One of the things that happens when you meditate is you change. Your personality changes. For the better, absolutely for the better. But we often get reports from meditators or concerns from meditators that the people around them are, are, are displeased by the change. And they can't point out anything that's wrong with the change, often. Sometimes it's, it's you're not as... You're not as much fun as before, we often hear, but often it's just, you've changed. And that's disconcerting, because we don't like change. We don't like change as a default before we've even determined whether it's a good or a bad change. It's just, it's, it's unsettling. We like to be settled. We like stability. Often we prefer stability, even when the state of things, this stable state of things is imperfect, unsatisfying, painful even. We prefer it to this scary nature of change. And so asking whether things is normal isn't, isn't of any use to us. We have to be prepared for the abnormal. We have to be open, flexible adaptable you're going to experience a lot of abnormal things potentially don't that's not a sign that something's wrong so things being more intense is not a sign that some things are wrong and it, it it would be equally problematic it can often be even more problematic to think that there's something right about that so whereas sometimes a meditator will be concerned that things have changed and there are abnormal experiences, it can also happen that another meditator might be reassured by things changing. Ah, this must be it. And they'll try to induce or evoke those abnormal or extraordinary states. That's also not right. There's nothing good about change. It's not a good sign. It's just not a bad sign. And being flexible and adaptable to change means being unmoved by change. Putasa loka dhammihi jitanyasana kampati Whose mind is unaffected, unwavering in the face of the changes, the, the, the ways of the world. The, the goal is to be unaffected by the ways of the ways of things, the vicissitudes of life, unaffected by change, independent of it. So we're not a slave to our reactions. We're not dependent on things. If it's like this, I'll be happy. If it's not like this, I won't be happy. I need this to happen to be happy. I need this not to happen to be happy. So will it remain so going forward? Isn't really all that. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about whether it will remain. Nothing lasts forever. It's a simple truth. More importantly, it doesn't matter whether it does. Things come or they go. It's not of any consequence. It doesn't mean anything that experiences are becoming more intense. That's a common experience it does come and go but don't be concerned with that be reassured that it is not the goal it is not the it is not what we're looking for this is not that try to remind yourself whenever you experience something just say 
This is not that. This is not what we're looking for. If it arises, it's not what we're looking for. And try to note those things, of course. If you feel the weight, if you feel pain, take them. just take them as an object. Don't be concerned whether they're intense or not. Do you cope with chronic illness and symptoms of pain with meditation? I find it very challenging as I'm just getting started with meditation. Well, challenge is good. Don't be discouraged by challenge. Try and work with your reactions to the challenge or your reactions that make you recognize or make you evaluate it as challenging. There might be stress, there might be discomfort, disliking. Try and look at those as well. But be prepared for the challenge. The only alternative, of course, is just to suffer with it, to become addicted to medita medication, and so on. We're much better off being challenged by mindfulness. Take the symptoms of pain as meditation. It's, there's very little alternative. The alternatives are not that. Not 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 better. The alternatives are not not really an option. Mindfulness is your best option. And it's challenging. But there's a difference between challenging and difficult and impossible. Just because something is difficult has no relation to impossible. And, and don't expect to be successful from the get-go. Small successes are where it's at. If you're able to, any time, note to yourself, pain, pain. That's that's success. There's great benefit just in that. And if you pull those moments together repeatedly, systematically, it becomes of great benefit. It can change your whole outlook on things like illness and pain. Focus on the feelings, the worries, the stresses, the disliking, the craving for a better state, for health. I'm currently in my last year of studies before university and there's a lot of pressure for me to go well in studies. I find myself feeling dissatisfied at the end of the day. How can I stay mindful? Sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do. Look at the, the dissatisfaction. Be mindful of the dissatisfaction. Be mindful of all your thoughts of what you could better be doing. Really, the, the more important thing is that we often focus too much on what we're doing. We focus on the fact that we're doing things rather than what we're doing. Right. So you don't want to be studying and you focus on that fact. I'm studying. And that's dis displeasing to us, dissatisfying. Don't look for satisfaction in those things. They're not going to satisfy you. 
Just because they don't satisfy you doesn't mean there's anything wrong. Doesn't mean you have to stop doing them. It's not what you're doing. It's what you're doing. It's not it's not what you're doing. It's it's not what you're doing, it's your awareness of you doing it. Your reaction, your perception of what you're doing. Knowledge that something is dissatisfying, that's a good thing. That it's I mean that it's unsatisfying. Maybe unsatisfying is a better word. Dissatisfying implies dis, a, a displeasure. Just because something is unsatisfying doesn't mean it has to, to displease you. So feeling dissatisfied is actually feeling displeasure, disliking. Try and focus on that. You're displeased. I am displeased. It's different from being unpleased, not pleased. Right? You don't have to be pleased by things. You don't have to be satisfied by things. Just don't be displeased, dissatisfied. That's the way because many times we have to do things that are unsatisfying, that have no capacity to satisfy us. In fact, satisfaction doesn't come from things at all, so it doesn't matter what you do, really. Satisfaction comes from an, an independence, anisito, to be independent, in, undependent, not dependent on, anisito, nisita. To have your happiness, your satisfaction, your peace of mind be independent of what, of what you're experiencing. Whatever you do, do it mindfully. So again, we're in the period where we're answering questions. We've. Please don't be upset when we remove your comments because this is not the time for comments. We're here meditating. It's it's understandable if people come and don't realize that. That's fine. We're not trying to be mean. We're just trying to stay focused. So if you don't have a question, just close your eyes and we recognize that you're here. We can see how many people, there's now 71 of us here. I guess that means 72, including me. We're happy that you're here. We appreciate that you're here. Just sit with us. Be a part of the community. If you have questions, post the questions in chat. At the end of the stream, we'll open it up again. Everyone can talk, and we can all say sad, as we appreciate the time we've taken. But for now, questions only. Should one force himself to meditate every day? Or should one not meditate if it requires forcing oneself? It doesn't really require forcing oneself. You see, if you're f forcing isn't really a thing. You get stressed about things. So the first arises the thought of meditating. I should meditate or even, yeah, I should meditate or just some thought about meditation, some reminder of your commitment to meditation perhaps. Just the thought of meditation arises. And then there arises all sorts of reactions to that thought. Oh yeah, I should. Oh no, not meditation. All of that before you've even forced your, you know, try, thought about forcing yourself. Maybe sometimes you're excited about it, but maybe sometimes you're really not excited about it. And all of that should be the object of mindfulness. So if you're averse to meditation, you should note that disliking, perhaps. Just afraid, worried sometimes. 
you do that, the idea of the, the concern about forcing has already been circumnavigated, circumvented, because you're already meditating. And so the idea of forcing doesn't have to ever come up. You can just change your posture. Do change your posture from sitting to or standing to walking. And are there you're doing the walking meditation. But the change of posture wasn't the beginning of meditation. The beginning of the meditation already started when you started noticing the disliking or the stress. And you just continue it in the walking posture. So you never have to force anything. Basically, focus on the disliking. Focus on what it is that requires you to force yourself. Because you're not actually forcing, you're just reacting to those reactions. feels like you're repressing them generally. It's actually just a reaction. If you don't like something, take that as your object. What are ways to make practice more continual outside of formal periods of sitting? Is this a natural outcome of years of practice? Or are there ways to expedite the process, so to say? I mean, the best way to expedite it is to do intensive practice. Intensive practice gives you a solid foundation. It's, it's a way of training the mind well intensively. It's not the ultimate solution because habits are deep-rooted and respond more to the long-term solution and the long-term effort that one puts in day after day after day. But they do respond on some level and, and there is a benefit. There is a sort of expediting to some extent through intensive practice, especially because of the um, the depth of clarity. See, daily life, daily practice, someone who practices every day, an hour or two, might think that they're accumulating benefit, but they're also potentially accumulating detriment in the times when they're not meditating, when they're not mindful. The time when you do intensive practice, you're constantly cultivating, repeatedly cultivating throughout the day this inclination towards clarity of mind. And so the depth of clarity, the intensity of it is increased. And as a result, what you come away with is generally much deeper and it can have a great it generally does have a great impact on your practice makes it easier to be practice uh, to be mindful outside of practice when you've been doing it day after day after day when you've trained in it moment after moment throughout the day in ways that you really can't in ordinary life because you're distracted by so many things in an intensive course, you're not as distracted. We we have a center here where we teach people. That's really the core of what I do is teach intensive courses, which I'm not doing at the moment because we're because it's hard for people to get here. But, but when that becomes easier again, or for those who are still able to come here in Canada, we can. They, we run these courses and you can train intensively. What day would you recommend to a serious lay practitioner to take the eight precepts continually? Would this be beneficial for his practice? It would, yes. 
Some people actually do that and continue going to work, depending on what their job is. But yeah, even in the time of the Buddha, there were, as I understand, there were lay people who took the eight precepts. I mean, were took them as a, they wore white and they established them in the eight precepts. It, it wasn't common. It's more common to take the eight precepts on the sab, what we call the Sabbath. I wonder if the Western Judeo-Christian Sabbath. Yeah, probably not. Might just be a, a very old tradition. It predates the Buddha in India. The idea of having a Sabbath or a holy day based on the moon. It was based on the moon. And so every half cycle of the moon, they would, or every cycle of the moon, they would keep, no, every half cycle, they would keep the, keep the eight precepts. I mean, before the Buddha, in other religious traditions in India, they would do other things like sacrifice goats, maybe, or well, meditate as well. extreme problems with keeping myself concentrated while meditating. Any solutions? Well, don't don't worry about the concentration. Don't be don't be upset because you're not concentrated. I mean, note that as well if you are upset. But try and look at the state of being distracted, of being unconcentrated. Concentration is a bit of a red herring. We're not we're not aiming to be concentrated. We're just aiming to see clearly. As you see more clearly, your mind sorts itself out and your mind becomes more focused just as a result. It's not the goal. To fo focusing isn't the practice. Not exactly. I mean, you focus in moments. You focus momentarily on things. When you're distracted, say to yourself, distracted, distracted. If you're just thinking, say thinking. There's emotions, note those. If it's overwhelming, you can just say to yourself, overwhelmed, overwhelmed. But don't worry or try to be concentrated. Don't be concerned that you're not concentrated. Recognize that you're making it a problem. Saying I have extreme problems is, is making it a problem and keeping yourself concentrated is, is an activity that we're not trying to engage in. Recognize when you're unconcentrated and the more times, the more often you can recognize that, the more focused you'll become. It's a challenge. Recognize that what you're experiencing is the challenging nature of being present. That's a good sign. You're, you're challenging yourself as a good sign. It's training you. It's helping you see more clearly, more deeply than before. Would you say that practicing metta bhavana and mindfulness would be one of the right ways to achieve more compassion? Well, yes to the mindfulness. I'm not sure that metta itself leads to greater compassion. On, only because they're not the same thing. But, but it's maybe nitpicking because metta and karuna are... are you can use the word karuna if you want because you're using the word metta. But metta and karuna are, are are basically two sides of the same coin. If you wish for people to be happy, it really... I mean, I guess yes. I guess if you are cultivating metta, because if you're wishing for people to be happy, how could you possibly not wish for them to be free from suffering? So I guess yes... Cultivating metta 
would indirectly improve compassion, but my answer was related to the, the benefit of mindfulness because metta and karuna, the point is that you really, if you really want to get better at metta and karuna and mudita and upeka, the four brahma-viharas, mindfulness is the key. The, the brahma-viharas can help you through the practice and intentional development of kindness and compassion and so on can keep can help you to help direct your mind towards this objectivity this clarity of mind but creating the the actual clarity of mind that comes from mindfulness in turn makes it easier to be kind and compassionate so they work together that way, cyclically. Metta and karuna support mindfulness, and mindfulness supports metta and karuna. And that, in that way, I wouldn't say so much that metta supports karuna and vice versa. They depend on on clarity of mind, because you 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 can't fake you can't fake it, and we often are faking it. So the intentional development of kindness is useful as a reminder. But there's a lack of depth if you're just forcing it, if you're just focused on metta, for example, as your main practice. Because if underneath you're, you have corruption of mind, you're just, you're just masking it. Wisdom is the only true... catalyst for change. How do you deal with feeling ashamed? Should I meditate on that, even if it brings many strong negative emotions? So mindfulness is about facing things. Don't be worried that it might bring strong negative emotions. Eventually, and as a result of mindfulness, you won't be afraid of those things anymore. That's the goal. Learn to face them. Because you now have the tool to face them in, the, in a way that you didn't have before. Without mindfulness, we don't have the tools we aren't equipped, we aren't equipped to deal with our feelings. That's why people go to therapy. Therapy is an interesting thing, and often therapists will remark on, from what I understand anyway, I don't have that much experience with therapists, but they'll often, as I understand, remark on the importance of mindfulness and the relationship between mindfulness and therapy. Because it's very similar when in therapy you're you're asked to describe your feelings, right? And we don't maybe realize that, but that's that's what we're doing here. We're teaching ourselves to do it. We're equipping ourselves with the tools, the ability to be to, to face our emotions. So absolutely, say to yourself, ashamed, ashamed. Whatever other negative emotions, anger, sadness, fear, face them. Learn to face them. Teach yourself how to face them. That's what mindfulness, that's the quality, the, uh, the flavor, the, the, the quality of mindfulness. That's what mindfulness is, does. We had all meditation questions. Looks like we even have more, perhaps. It's nine o'clock, so that's our hour. You know what they say, always leave them wanting more, so... No, I don't know how... It's, uh, but we can never answer all the questions. That's never going to happen. 
mean, a lot of these are repeated questions, of course, people asking the same things. That's not a problem. It's not a problem to hear the same questions again. It's not a problem for me to answer them again. Obviously, some people haven't heard the answers, and even if you have, don't worry about hearing them again. Don't be discouraged that you come here and you just hear the same things over and over again. Repeti repetition is a very important part of learning. Let's just repeat these things to ourselves. Try and get them right. And if we hear them again, if we say them again and again, or hear them again and again, then good for us. It's open again. I'm opening it up. Say what you want. Let's all say sadhu. If there are... Oh, sorry, Shada, I didn't... You had something to say, and it has maybe had to do with questions. Do we have more questions? Any really important ones? There was one more meditation related, or two more, but I'll just send a message for them to ask another time, next time. Nothing really serious. Anything really serious? No. All right. So you can all say sadhu. If you want to complain, you can complain, but the thing about complaints is that they're not very nice, and so... Unless it's really important, you can contact me in private if you have real complaints. Not really keen on complaints. If you don't like it, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Let's keep this friendly and kind. If if what if this was just a worthless session, then don't come back. But if there was something you gained from it, let's talk about that. How good it is that we all try to come here to try to be good and pure, to do something good for ourselves. I appreciate, and we should all appreciate, other people's intentions to better themselves. Don't worry about them doing things for you. You're not here to do something for me. You don't need me to be here to do something for you. You're here to better yourself. You're here to get something. You're here to gain from this for your own benefit. And I applaud that. Sadhu. Also, there are many YouTube videos. The problem with these these new sessions we're having is that they, they're all mixed up, right? There's no subjects. People have complained about that. It's an interesting point. But to that end, we have a group of volunteers, it's, I understand, who are putting together written versions of these talks. Our... Um, is there some, Shraddha, is there some indexing of, of questions? Like if you're using this sort of uh, session to find these answers, are you also indexing them? Like like you can have timestamps where people can find these? Are you asking for the book or for the video? Yeah, yeah. For what? For, for either, I guess. Um, so for like the is video... there ever going to be a... An index of this sort of video? Yeah, so Sebastian has an idea about making chapters. We'll discuss with you at some point. Uh, for chapters? the book, I'm not actually sure. Chapters, like what you're saying, there's questions mm -hmm. with time of uh -huh. when it starts, and you can click on the time and it goes directly to mm -hmm. that question. Because if you're if you're taking them from these anyway for the book project, you might want to just keep track of the timestamp. I mean, then they're there. Then, if you're if you're taking them anyway, it would be useful. It'd be a good service if people jotted down, copied down the timestamp. No. Oh, yes, I was trying to do it, but I think it's a bit hard for me to do it. Um, but maybe. I think, I think so. Suppose you're watching a video. Suppose uh, 
I think uh, you can just click on the share link or something and it immediately has a timestamp. Right. Um, yeah, we can either ask people to do it, but I think Sebastian has a more an idea of doing it more automated. Like he has a, um, he was thinking of a way to read what's on the screen and when it, and I think if he's doing that, then we can put timestamps for when what's on the screen changes. Wow. That's kind of cool. cool. Yeah, that would work, I guess. I'm not actually sure what how it would work, but I think mm -hmm. that could be done. Okay, well, anyway, thank you all. We're ending the stream now. Wish you all a good day. May you find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering.